Committee as well. So I just uh, thank the leaders for the opportunity to be able to bring this message to you ladies. For sake of time, I'm not going to be reading all the verses, so if you already have your Bible open to chapter 3, as I refer to a verse, you can look it up. I'll, I might be paraphrasing or just using some of it for the sake of time. So ladies, up till now, Christians have lived under the comforts and freedoms of our democracy. For the most part in this country, we have not suffered religious persecution or serious consequences because of our faith. Because of this, many believers are quite content to live out their faith in a state of casual Christianity. Our freedoms have resulted in many Christians having an external righteousness which masks a shallow or non-existent internal righteousness. So believers, if we, some believers, if we hold to some, uh, some believers believe if we hold to some external rules of our society or our churches, that translates into a correct lifestyle before the Lord. But this kind of mindset compromises God's call to true holiness and results in nothing less than an outward show of faith that has no substance. The Bible has much to say about those who claim the faith but live it out in external observances only. In Romans chapter 2 to 3, Paul confronts this very issue as he looks at the Jewish people of his day who claim to have perfect standing with God because of the dictates of their own laws. The Apostle Paul confronts this erroneous thinking in several ways. So looking at chapter 3, Paul presents three clear arguments against the Jewish mindset of the day. And I've broken it down into three sections, which I have entitled... Jewish religion rebutted, verses 1 through 8, the guilt of all humanity, verses 9 to 20, and God's plan of salvation, verses 21 to 31. First, we'll look at Paul's rebuttal of Jewish religion in verses 1 through 8. So ladies, if you're a mom, I'm sure you've had the what-if argument with your kids. Does this sound familiar? Mom, can I have a snack? No, you can't have a snack. We're going to eat dinner soon. But what if I just have a small snack? No, it's still going to spoil your dinner. But what if I promise I'll eat all my dinner? No, no, no. This is exactly what the Jews were doing in, uh, to Paul in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. They were presenting the what-ifs. So let's recall from chapter 2, Paul taught that true circumcision is that of the heart and not an outward sign that saves a person. Salvation is the work of God's spirit in the heart, not mere external effort to conform to his law. He also taught that there is no fundamental difference between Jews and Gentiles and that the law and circumcision, again, did not guarantee neither Jewish immunity to the judgment of God or Jewish identity as the people of God. This teaching was, uh, is what prompted the objections in chapter 3. The Jews continue to press this issue, and starting in verse 1 with their first what-if, they question Paul asking, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? What good is it if we're condemned along with everyone else? So this seemed to undermine the very tenets, the very foundation of Judaism. The Jews were asking Paul, are you suggesting that being Jewish has no benefit at all? 
Are you saying that the covenants, the Mosaic law, our circumcision and our heritage as the chosen people of God, it's all meaningless? If this were true, then Paul could be accused of blaspheming the very name of God. But Paul responds in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So on the contrary, Paul was saying that there was great advantage to being Jewish. The Jews had the uh, entire Old Testament, which, came, which contained the truth about salvation and the gospel. Paul would go on to say in Romans 9, 4, that to the Israelites pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Although being Jewish didn't bring salvation, it came with many benefits not given to the Gentiles. Paul then points out that in spite of the benefits given to them by God, neither their ceremonies, which specifically circumcision, nor their knowledge of their heritage would exempt them from God's judgment. The Jewish people were blessed, they were protected, and they were delivered like no other nation on earth. But they erred greatly by depending on their external status before the Lord to justify them. Ladies, I hope you're not depending on your heritage, being brought up in a Christian home, or depending on your good works to earn your way to heaven. At the very core of our faith is an internal attitude of contriteness, a desire to repent of our sins, and put faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. This brings us to our second what if. Well, what if some were sinful? Uh, I'm sorry. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What the Jews are saying here is that even though some did not believe, won't God have to keep his promises to the Jewish nation anyway? Emphatically, Paul answers, may it never be. This is the strongest Greek expression carrying the idea of impossibility. Of course God cannot be unfaithful in his promises. God clearly promised the national salvation of Israel in the future. But the future did not give individual Jews any more of a guarantee to be saved than the most pagan Gentile. Paul's accusers believe that God's unconditional promises to Israel apply to all individual Jews. But as Paul said in Romans 9, verses 6 through 7, but it is not the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. So the accusers were right in saying that God cannot break his word. If the blessings of a promise failed to happen, it is because his people did not believe and obey the conditions of the promise. But that still would not prevent the salvation promised to the remnant of national Israel in the future. But again, and I'm going to say this over and over and over, salvation was never offered to the Jews based on heritage, ceremony, or good works. They had to have an internal faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. So let's consider the following example. A youth enrolls in college, and he has many advantages over other students. He has come from a rich family, so paying room and board and tuition is no problem. He enjoys excellent health and is even blessed with above-average intelligence. 
The college rates him very high, and his professors are some of the best. Yet, in spite of all these advantages, he never graduates. Why? Because he did not make the most of his opportunities. He squandered his time away, is lazy and unfaithful in applying the advantages given to him. This was the case with Israel. If a Jew forfeited his right to God's promised blessing and barred himself from the inheritance of God's kingdom, it would never nullify the faithfulness of God. Paul responds again, may it never be. This promise is just as true as it is for us today. Ladies, we have been entrusted with sound biblical churches, faithful leaders that stand on doctrinal truth. Are you availing yourself to all of these churches that these churches have for you? Are you taking advantage of what is offered? I know we have a gift here at Lakeside. Our church collectively leads each one of us to see the importance of our individual faithfulness to the Lord. Our benefits of being in a sound local church doesn't save us, but these benefits lead us to the true way of salvation and point out the dangers of unbelief. So this brings us to the third what if offered by the Jews. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts a wrath? The Jews were now accusing Paul of attacking the purity and holiness of God. John MacArthur paraphrases this accusation saying, If God is glorified by the sins of Israel being shown faithful himself despite the unfaithfulness of his chosen people, then sin glorifies God. In other words, Paul, you are saying that what God strictly forbids actually brings him glory. If what you say is true, then why does God even punish sin? So do you see what the Jews were saying here? That if God's righteousness appears in a clearer light because of our sin, could God really blame us for our sin? Again, Paul says, may it never be. For then, how will God judge the world? God would never encourage or condone sin in order to glorify himself. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? So Paul counters their argument by saying, if God cannot judge a sinner because his sin makes the righteousness of God more evident, then he cannot deal with any sinner. It would literally make, make void the judgment of God. In verses 7 and 8, Paul reiterates the false charges against him in different terms. He says, you claim that I say, if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also being judged a sinner? Again, his accusers were saying Paul was teaching that the more wicked a person is, the more God is glorified. The more faithless a person is, the more faithful he makes God appear. The more a person lies, the more he exalts God's truthfulness. The Jews would argue that if a man's lie made under truth appeared greater, then how could God just, how could ju uh, justly judge the sinner? How could do, God do that? The Jews thought this man should escape the judgment of God. Paul's enemies had repeatedly charged that the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone not only undermined God's law, but that it also granted license to sin with no punishment. 
Their religion was characterized by legalism and the idea of divine grace was foreign to them. It completely undermined their works righteousness in which their hope was found. This is why understanding and responding to the true gospel is so important. Just as the Jew trusted in the law, in circumcision, and their birth, many professing Christians trust in the same things today. Many believe that the Bible teaches a works righteousness, salvation. Many wrongly base their hope upon the fact that they have Christian parents, or that they were christened as babies, or they feel that they've kept the Ten Commandments, although no one has ever done that. So ladies, there's no refuge for the sinner in keeping the law, in church ordinances, or in mere human birth, no matter how good you are. It is a matter of the heart. Yet today, every other religion outside of biblical Christianity teaches some form of human works, righteousness, to get them to heaven. Paul has clearly shown us in verses 1 to 8 that Jew and Gentile alike are guilty and condemned before God. He has shown us without question that the world is lost. There's no refuge for the sinner who tries to rationalize sin. We cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. It is vile to think that our sin brings glory to God. And it, it is only as we repent of our sins and turn by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone for salvation, that we are redeemed from sin and justified before our holy God. So this brings us to our second sec uh, section, the guilty of all humanity, which is found in verses 9 through 20. Verse 9, Paul summarizes all that has gone before this by saying, are we better then? So in other words, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? The answer not at all. Both Jews and Gentiles alike stand guilty before God. The belief among the Jews in Paul's day was that they were righteous before God simply by virtue of being Jewish. But notice the end of verse 9 says, they are all under sin. In other words, not all men, not, not as all men appear in their own eyes, but rather as they stand before God. Many people don't see their sin. They assess their degree of righteousness by comparing their idea of righteousness against others. John MacArthur rightly says, people who are very religious tend to think of themselves as being inherently better than others and favored by God because of their goodness and re religiosity. And isn't that true that at times we're tempted to think that we're more deserving of salvation than others because we're better than they are or our sin is less grievous than others. We may readily admit that we're guilty before God, but we're tempted to think that we are certainly not as guilty as other people we know. That was the thinking of the self-righteous Jews. So after correcting once again the thinking of the Jewish people, Paul goes on in verses 10 to 18 to give 14 indictments that God brings against all mankind in his depraved state. The first indictment is against man's character in verses 10 to 12. The verses say, there is none righteous. Man is universally evil. There are none who understands. 
We are unable to understand or grasp God's truth and standard of righteousness. No one seeks after God. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All have turned aside. Not only do we not seek the true and living God, but we actually run if, excuse me, in the wrong direction. And none does good. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now this is the character of man without Christ. Next in the indictment is on man's conversation in verses 13 to 14. Paul compares the throats of the unsaved to open graves. People are generally covered up in death to hide their decay and stench. But here Paul is saying the natural man's throat is wide open, revealing his spiritual death by the foulness of his words. And in addition, his tongue keeps deceiving. For the natural man, lying and continual repetitive deceit is a habit and a normal part of his life. In verse 13 says, just as a viper strikes quickly with deadly accuracy in injecting its poison, so the false doctrines and deceitful characters of false teachers inject spiritual poison into the minds and hearts of all who listen to them. Lastly, the conversation of the wicked is full of cursing and bitterness. They speak maliciously against others through criticism and gossip. They express emotional hostility towards others, and they use their tongues as vicious weapons. Lastly is the indictment on man's conduct in verses 15 to 18. Man in his depravity also shed blood of his fellow man. And this started back in Genesis when Cain slew his brother Abel. The human heart is desperately wicked. And added to this, man is bent towards destruction in misery, which we see in verse 16. Man damages and destroys everything he touches, leaving a trail of pain and despair. Despite all the treaties and pacts and promises of mankind that peace will be attained, man has never nor ever will be achieve lasting peace apart from saving faith and a renewed heart. The peace of God is absolutely unknown to the majority of mankind. And why is mankind in such a state of despair and destruction? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Without a reverential fear of God, there is an absence of wisdom, and man is spiritually is in spiritual and moral darkness. And this is the way of the natural man who is enslaved to sin and blinded in his total depravity. Men would rather suppress the truth in unrighteousness than acknowledge the authority of God over them. Ladies, in a human court, when a charge is made, the defendant has a chance to speak for himself. But when the unsaved stand before the judgment seat of God at the great white throne judgment and hear the indictments against them, there will be no noisy, clamoring arguments. Every mouth will be stopped. Verse 19. 
There will be no defense. There will be no rebuttal other than I'm guilty. Only one voice will speak, the voice of the judge. So for all who think they will be justified by the deeds of the flesh, they will one day hear God's verdict towards them, guilty. But for all who are justified by faith, who have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, having a reverential fear of God is the beginning of spiritual wisdom. So the verdict found in verses 19 to 20 is this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. There is no defense against the guilty verdict God pronounces on the entire human race. Every unredeemed human being, Jew or Gentile, is under the law of God and accountable to God. Verse 20 states, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There is no salvation through the keeping of God's law because sinful man is utterly incapable of doing so. It is only through the grace of God acting through the sacrifice of his son that salvation and eternal life are made possible. This is the final verdict. Unredeemed mankind has no defense whatsoever and is guilty of all charges. He has neither the ability nor the justification to defend himself. And apart from the law, through the grace of God, acting through the sacrifice of his son, salvation and eternal life are made possible. But under the law, there can be no sentence but death. Yay, the good part. <laughs> this brings us to our third and last section, God's plan of salvation, verses 21 to 31. One of the biggest stumbling blocks for the Jews concerning their salvation, again, was their dependence upon doing the works of the law. Paul brings this out in Romans 10, 2-4, when he states, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul understood that for the Jews to truly understand salvation, they had to understand God's work behind salvation. To accomplish that, Paul produced, introduces three critical words that the Jews needed to understand if they were to know the true way to salvation. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Here, Paul transitions from the condemnation of man under the law to the hope he has in Christ. Back in verse 20, Paul had stated that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But now in verse 21, we read these glorious words, but now. In contrast to the hopelessness of trying to gain righteousness through the law, Paul says the true righteousness comes through faith in Christ for all who believe. This is the heart of the gospel. Verse 24 says that salvation comes when one is justified as a gift by his grace. And we see that brought out in verse 24, 26, 28, and 30. Justification is the judicial act of God 
where he justly declares and treats as righteous the one who believes in Jesus Christ. This is a one-time act that occurs at the moment of salvation. Justification does not mean that a man is made righteous, but rather pronounced righteous by God. Our righteousness, then, is the imputed righteousness of Christ in us. Next is the important aspect of redemption. We read that in verse 24. In the Greek, this word means to ransom in full, to provide deliverance. This means that in Christ's atoning work for us, we are set free. We're liberated from the penalty of sin because Jesus ransomed us from death. So often we hear that salvation is free, and it is a free gift to us. But God does not justify us freely by his grace without demanding atonement for our sins. Sin must be paid for. And Jesus ransomed himself for us to redeem us from the penalty of our sins. As 1 Corinthians 6.20 states, For you, have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Although God's grace cost us nothing, it cost Jesus everything. He paid the ultimate price for our freedom from sin. Our last word, propitiation, which we read in verses 24 and 25, literally means to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God by making it possible for him to show mercy righteously. Practically speaking, propitiation means averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. It refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin. By God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took our place. He became our substitute and was punished by our sins in our place so that we in Christ would not have to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God. So right from the start, Paul is telling us that God's righteousness is given to believers apart from the obedience of any law. The law points to God's righteousness, but it cannot provide salvation for any man. Only Jesus Christ can do that. The law and the prophets did not show men how to achieve righteousness on their own, but pointed them to the coming Messiah. Verse 22 states that the righteousness of God is received by all men through faith in Christ apart from any man's works. And saving faith is much more than a simple affirmation of certain truths. Saving uh, faith is placing oneself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6.17 states, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And why did Christ do this? Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person fails to live up to God's standard of righteousness. So apart from God, we are all guilty. And in God's eyes, there is no distinction between Jew, Gentile, male, or female, male, or slave, or free men. But praise be to God, our Lord Jesus Christ became a propitiation for us. 
And in and through Christ, we are justified and redeemed. This, ladies, is the plan of salvation. Justification is a gracious gift God gives to the repentant, believing sinner, totally apart from human merit or work, in which we are declared righteous and treated as such. Redemption is Christ's provision to us to buy us out of the slave market of sin by shedding his blood and atoning for our sins. And propitiation is Christ dying in our place for our sins, uh, completing, satisfying the just demands of a holy God for judgment on sin by his death on a cross, therefore justifying sinners. In verses 27 to 31, Paul ends the chapter, where then is boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He continues to show the Jews that salvation comes only through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul boldly proclaimed to the Jews that neither their laws, their heritage, nor their ceremonial works could save them from God's condemnation. He bore witness to the fact that salvation is found only for those who place their faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And Paul ends by reaffirming that salvation by grace through faith does not negate the law, but underscores its true importance, which is to show men the perfect standards of God's righteousness and to show that those standards are impossible to attain through man's own effort. Thus, the purpose of the law is to drive men to faith in God. Ladies, when it comes to our salvation... I hope that you don't have any what-ifs, that what-ifs have no place in your vocabulary. I pray that seeing from chapters 1 through 3 that we are all guilty before a righteous and holy God, and it is only by God's grace through faith in Christ that we have salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray if there are any ladies here that are unsure of where they will spend eternity, that this would be the day they recognize their need for a Savior, bend the knee, repent, and receive the free gift of salvation. And for those who have trusted in the finished work on the cross by Christ, that they would continue the good fight, keep the faith, and be renewed day by day by your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.